The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today. Welcome to One Hour at a Time. And um, I've been looking forward to this show for a couple of months. I'd like to introduce you to our guest, Dr. Patricia O'Gorman, who is the author of The Resilient Woman. And she was on our show a few months ago talking about um, that book. Um, she's also written Healing Trauma Through Self-Parenting. Dr. O'Gorman is an internationally recognized speaker. She's a psychologist. She's also um, a coach. Um, she's worked with women with trauma, with children of alcoholics, and with people who experience substance abuse. She is consulting on the development of a resiliency-focused approach for women's treatment with LifeScape Solutions and serves as the chairperson of the advisory board of Horses Healing Hearts, a national equine experiential program for children of alcoholics, both in Delray Beach, Florida. And um, she's a former director of the Division of Prevention for National Institute on Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse. She was a director of a rape crisis center and a co-founder of the National Association for Children of Alcoholics. She has also worked in child welfare. Dr. Gorn. O'Gorman is a veteran of numerous television appearances, including the Today Show, AM Sunday, and can be reached through www.patriciaogorman.com. Welcome, Dr. O'Gorman, to our show. Well, it's a pleasure, Mary, to be on again with you. Thank you. Um, For our listeners, during our last show, during the break, um, Dr. Gorman and I were talking, and we were talking about the concept of codependency, which um, up until I talked to Dr. O'Gorman, I was afraid to utter in public because throughout the history of addiction treatment, codependency has been seen as something that happens to um, a family or, or to someone who's involved with somebody who has a substance use disorder. And for the most part, it's viewed as something negative. And... Um, and it almost, in some ways, can people can feel shamed and blamed to be codependent. And um, and I thought differently about it, and just never really talked about it because I didn't want to create waves. But when I talked <laughs> to Dr. Gorman, I thought, wow, she really knows what she's talking about. So I'm going to let you create all the waves you want, Dr. Gorman. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, it's it's been fun to actually think about being on the show and really thinking about the evolution of my thinking of this term codependency. And um, I I wrote a book that's been out 25 years now, and it's called 12 Steps to Self-Parenting. And many of your uh, listeners may have read it. It's um, a book that's been out. It's been helpful. And um, 
in that book, I began to really tackle my thinking about what codependency is and what it isn't. <laughs> and in in um, my book, 12 Steps to Self-Parenting, um, I began to really wrestle with the fact that just because we grow up in a home that has trauma and addiction does not mean um, that we are sick. Um, it means we've been challenged. <laughs> it means life has been hard, but it doesn't. It doesn't mean, I believe, that we have been stamped with a mark um, that we that we can't do anything about. So, I have always wrestled with the fact that codependency is a disease. I don't believe it is. Um, I've wrestled with the fact that it is something that, you know, brands us in some way. Um, you know, I, I've never believed that. And part of that, you know, has been for, you know, in some ways one can consider personal or selfish reasons that having myself grown up in a pretty um, uh, classic, violent, alcoholic home, I didn't want to come out of it thinking that I was sick or warped. I knew I was challenged. I knew life was difficult, but I didn't want any of that to be something that was permanent. So when the codependency movement was really getting up ahead of steam, I, I remember I wrote an article for I, one of the major um, psychiatric journals. Um, I forget exactly which one, and, but I remember the name of the article. And the name of the article was Codependency, Diagnosis or Social Movement. Because in speaking at all the ACOA conferences that I was speaking at, um, it, it had more of the feeling of a social movement than everybody rallying around the fact that they now have a diagnosis. I think codependency described a process. I think it described um, pain and it put a name to the pain but that it had to be now a diagnosis, um, you know, comparable to depression, um, you know, just always troubled me. And my experience there and my writing in, you know, more scientific journals, um, you know, set the stage for my first book on women, uh, which came out 19 years ago called Dancing Backwards in High Heels. And um, my most recent book, The Resilient Woman, started out as a, updating of that and turned into a rewriting of that. Um, but, you know, along the way, I have been really looking at this term codependency and um, and my latest take on this, um, which I articulated in my book, um, Healing Trauma Through Self-Parenting, is that maybe this thing that people are grappling with you know, that, you know, there are so many, I think, definitions and feelings that come under this term codependency. You know, maybe it's not so bad in a way because there are many other alternatives to dealing with trauma other than helping people. <laughs> people deal with trauma lots of ways and many of them are really um, entrapping. And certainly if you're way of dealing with trauma is to help others, um, maybe it doesn't have to trap you. You know, maybe there is, um, maybe it's a good midway point um, of which um, it's a better one than some of the other ways that people deal with trauma, like 
themselves drinking and drugging or becoming violent or becoming antisocial. Um, you know, there are many alternatives out there. So it got me started thinking that maybe this thing called codependency, maybe they ain't that bad. So, <laughs> so that's my summary. <laughs> well, let's explore that a little bit because back in the day, code, uh, somebody who was codependent, it was really seen, as you said, as a pathology. Right. But it was also a loss of your own identity because you were so consumed with helping another person. Right, um, and I, when I would lecture on this, and um, I certainly have written extensively on this, what I, my definition for codependency came from the work of Seligman, um, Martin Seligman, who has researched a term and has done this for quite a while called learned helplessness. And when I went into the research, um, I thought that that actually fit what we were talking about very well, that what happens in a home with repeated trauma, what happens in a home with trauma and lack of validation that that trauma has happened is that it shapes the child and it shapes the child potentially in the way of creating um, and reinforcing what's called an external locus of control. And what locus of control is, it's a fancy name for saying, where's your power? And um, as little kids, um, our power is in our parents, but our whole educational system is really based on the fact that as we get older, that we can internalize our power because our how we're taught changes. You know, we're responsible for writing down our own assignments and for now doing projects. And God knows by the time we go into college, you know, we're responsible for getting ourselves to class or not to class. And um, so locus of control is who has the power with the understanding that as we develop a normal thing for children to grow and develop is that they would have more power and that they would internalize that they can make things happen. What I believe happens um, in my in my understanding of codependency is that all the trauma that causes um this thing called codependency really interferes with the process of being able to internalize your own power. And so if your sense of power or efficacy just comes from what you can do for others and it's not reinforced for what you can do for yourself, then you will, as a child and adolescent and um, adult, keep doing for others. So I'm not saying it's a free ride. I'm not saying it's pain-free. I just think it's more it's more hopeful than how it was portrayed back in the day. Because back in the day, it wasn't portrayed as very hopeful. And I remember I had a um, a personal epiphany um, where I was, you know, doing a, a large lecture. I don't know. There were you know, several hundred people, and after the lecture, a person came up to me who I knew from my personal life, and I knew her family well because I um, had an apartment when I was in college and my apartment mate was her sister. So I knew this family. I mean, we went back and forth a lot. And I knew there was no alcoholism in her family. And um, I said, you know, so-and-so, what are you doing here? And she said, oh, I so relate to this. This is just like my family. And, um, and I just tossed around 
that a lot in my mind. Now, what her family was, was both of her parents were concentration camp survivors. And they certainly had a lot of trauma, her parents in their own life. Um, Her sister's life was very traumatic. She was born in a DP camp and eventually came to the U.S. Um, This was the youngest sibling. She had been born in the U.S., but she was born from a family with lots of trauma and the fact that she felt that the only way she could be reinforced for who she was was by caring for others. It's you know one of those first conscious moments of my beginning to rethink what is it that we are really talking about when we're saying codependency. So, you know, I have come back um, time and time again that I think it really is learned helplessness and um, what's been learned one way can be learned another way. So... <laughs> That that certainly puts a different spin on the whole concept of codependency. It's not an adjective that that most people would aspire to because there's such a negative connotation for it. And I think that, you know, when when you look at families who um, have substance abuse or significant trauma in them, whether it's a you know chronic illness or or whatever, part of your way of because you have no control over that illness is that you try to try to control or take care of something. And that in and of itself, I don't think is a negative right. uh, behavior, but it gets characterized as a negative behavior because people don't have any other types of coping skills. And I think one of the things I would like to see um, our profession do is start looking at this from a more resilient perspective is that this is what this person knows to cope. It's our job then to teach them different coping skills besides just labeling them and, and seeing this behavior as as so negative because it's shaming. And we have it to is. A break. It, is. it became we'll, shaming. It became terrible. And we did it to ourselves. <laughs> you know? Right. We did. Well, well, most of the things we do in this profession, we do to ourselves. And we'll be right back after this commercial to talk some more with Dr. O'Gorman. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. 
because shift happens. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today, and our guest is Dr. Patricia O'Gorman, who is the author of The Resilient Woman, Mastering the Seven Steps to Personal Power, and she's written seven other books, including Healing Trauma Through Self-Parenting. Um, Dr. O'Gorman is really one of the pioneers in our profession when it comes to the treatment of children of alcoholics and adult children of alcoholics, and um, this whole concept of codependency, i I'm so glad we're having this conversation because I think, you know, a lot of the families and a lot of the people that I work with, they kind of put their head down and um, and say, yes, I'm codependent. And when I went to, um, when I first got in this profession, I'm a nurse, and I one of the statistics I learned is that nurses have the highest rate of alcoholic fathers than any other profession. And I thought, well, okay, that makes sense. But when you think about it, you know, um, if dealing with that family system took me into nursing and I'm taking care of other people, I was getting paid to take care of other people, I enjoyed taking care of other people, mm-hmm. that was just, that was not a negative thing for me. And and when you think about firemen, they risk their lives to take care of other people. You hear about people who are in battle and they'll step in front of a bullet to save their 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 uh, buddy, and that's not seen as codependent or negative. So why do we put this negative connotation on on an individual who is being affected by a chronic illness? Well, it's it's so well stated (laughs) and so brilliant. And and we, we put this negative connotation on it, I think, as a way of having a label for our pain because it is very painful. But that doesn't mean that because we are experiencing a kind of learned response to trauma that that has to be something permanent, indulgable, um, diagnosable. <laughs> it just means that's a pattern that, that we have, that uh, we've learned, and it's a you know, it has a lot of positive um, ramifications. You know, I'm reminded of, a, as you mentioned, about nursing, that there was a study, you know, that took place quite a while ago at this point, but it looked at how many people entering medical school were the oldest children of alcoholics. 
And it was a very high number. It was not a random number. I forget the exact number. I think it was about a third. Um, were the not just children of alcoholics, but the oldest child of an alcoholic. So what does that mean? That means that there are certain ways that we've been taught within our family how to handle pain. Now, that doesn't limit us. That just kind of starts us. You know, it starts us in our path in life. And, um, yes, handling pain and, and living in a traumatic home is awful. And no child should have to do this. But many children, that is where they are. And um, with all of our you know, wonderful court systems about, you know, protecting children and CPS and everything else, the reality is we do not have a great foster care system um, in this country either. So it's not like we can pull children out of an abusive home and say, guarantee they're going to be in a much better situation. We hope it'll be better. We work for it to be better. But in many cases, it's, you know, it's, it's trading one set of problems for another. So taking kids out of the family, putting them in foster care is not necessarily the answer. The answer is how do we help families reorganize so we reduce the pain load on everyone, including the children. And um, so this, you know, term codependency, I think, is a term being used to describe pain. But there are many different ways people respond to pain. If we, if we go to our prisons, um, I would say that probably 90% or more of the people in jail are responding to trauma of childhood and they're responding either with aggression or they're responding by self-anesthetizing and selling or um, they're responding um, by really uh, saying that, you know, you have that and I want it and I deserve it because I never got it and stealing. But they're also responding, they've just taken this pain in a different direction. Now, that's not to minimize the pain. There's awful pain in not knowing what you feel and what you need, but you can figure that out. You can learn that. You know, it's not, you know, you're, you're not starting from 20 years behind bars. You're starting from a point where you are in your life where you begin to, you know, bud like a flower <laughs> and open up and realize what life has to offer for you. Um, Many, um, there's been also research about how many children of alcoholics actually go into the armed services um, because it gives them structure, it gives them camaraderie, it gives them a new family, and yes, they will take a bullet. Um, and we certainly have seen that um, through our endless wars. Um, you know, for, for a colleague, for a friend, um, for their commanding officer, um, and we celebrate that, that kind of selflessness, as you said. Uh, so we need to, I think, celebrate the resilience um, that children have when they grow up in families where there's trauma, even if the resilience is shown by, I now have this incredible sensitivity to what other people need, and help people build on that by learning what it is they need. It's kind of like I say to my patients, um, Hold up a mirror. What you're sending out, reflect it back. <laughs> you know, it's really, that's a great suggestion. How do we get our system to look at resiliency instead of pathology? That is, you know, it's a very important point because we have 
um, DSM-4 um, is, um, and we have DSM-5 about to come out, we're talking about now a, a thousand pages of what's wrong with us. Mm-hmm. We don't have compendium books about what's right with us. Um, you know, my book, my two books on women and resilience, um, uh, the Resilient Woman, I think, is 300 pages, has a lot of exercises in it so people can kind of work through and wrap their mind around what's really right with them. But we don't tend to focus on that, and we need to. We, we need to do as much of a resiliency assessment when we get somebody in care, whether it's outpatient or inpatient, as much as we do a pathology assessment, you know, a mental health assessment, an addiction assessment. What's right with this person that has kept them alive through battling whatever they're battling? What skills do they have? Um, people will ask me, and I'm, I'm a, psych- a psychologist, as you said, and um, I'm you know, still in practice, um, and people will say, well, what's your specialty? Do you, is your specialty really working with people you know, um, with addiction? And I say, no, I really enjoy having a general practice um, because my specialty is my approach to whoever I work with, and my approach is to really focus on what's right with them and to help them see how to use what's right with them to address what it is that they're struggling with. And we could use more of that. And with this whole change that's happening in healthcare around us and these new realignments, um, I'd like to see that be one of the realignments that we really do develop a focus on resiliency, those hard, hard, hard skills that we have developed under adverse circumstances and see how to use them for ourselves. I mean, that's what my whole book on women and resilience is about, is about really teaching women how to do for themselves what they're doing for others. You know, it's um, when I think about that, I, I think about how, you know, people that have chronic illnesses such as substance use disorders or, or mental illness, you know, it's these illnesses, wax and wane over time and I I think that sometimes I sit into our team meeting and I hear about what's going wrong and every once in a while I'll walk in and I'll say just I don't want to hear about what went wrong over the weekend let's hear about what went right and steps demeanor changes when they start to talk about well you know so and so did this and he did this and I mean the energy shifts in the room you know and I think that there's a lot to be said for for professionals when they start to focus on what's going well because I think they feel better about what they're doing. They, they absolutely feel better about what they're doing. And I, I tend to do short-term treatment even though I deal with people with you know, ma- major issues. And I think part of why I can work shorter term than you know, many of my colleagues is because I focus on what people are doing right, and when they do something right, I ask them the really hard question, which is, how did you do that? And I get them to figure out their process for doing things that are helpful to them. And all of our internal process is different about that. You know, however we pull in whatever we pull in so we can be helpful to ourselves. But it's a very important question. And um, it's, you know, how did you do that? That's amazing. How did you do that? And, you know, whether it's, you know, supervising of staff 
whether it's working with somebody in a clinical situation, whether it's dealing with our teenagers, you know, getting getting the person to really acknowledge not that they did do something that was positive, but how they did something positive, or even how they did something positive in this extraordinary circumstance where other people were not doing the right thing, but they did do the right thing. So instead of just, you know, patting them on the shoulder, great, you know, you didn't use and your friends all used, you know, well, how did you not use? (laughs) That's really the question. You know, how did you not hit back? Um, You know, how, you know, it's in some ways, Mary, what you're talking about is how do we help people own the best in them as we also help help them understand and treat that part of them that they're struggling with? And I... I think for myself, looking back on my career, I, I like many people, have always been trying to minimize pain, and, um, and I think that's what has really focused me for so much of my career on really, you know, understanding what is, you know, what is resilience. And even my, my book, 12 Steps to Self-Parenting, that concept of self-parenting, um, you know, how can we take care of ourselves? You know, so many of us, did not receive what we needed, how can we give it to ourselves now? And that will kind of pick up on that after this commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Tune in every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Eat Well to Live Well with Kelly Hill. Kelly covers our relationship with food and teaches us how easy eating well and living well can be, taking us on a weekly food journey, guiding us to a more rich and vibrant life. So tune in every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Eat Well to Live Well with Kelly Hill. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. We're talking about codependency today with Dr. Patricia O'Gorman, who is a renowned author. Um, she's a pioneer in the treatment of children of alcoholics, and she's a pioneer when we talk about resiliency, and she's uh, starting to get us to think a little bit differently about the concept of codependency. And um, I, I do want to get back to resiliency, Dr. Gorman, but um, the whole concept, of, I probably shouldn't say the name of the book, but a long time ago there was a book called Codependent No More. And and I keep thinking that that just keeps going in my head as, as we're talking. And, and I'm, you know, so much about people getting better from either mental illness or, or substance use disorders. It's about how connected they are to, to other people, how connected they are to the community. Certainly the, one of the miracles of 12-step groups is that connection that people feel and how, um, how dependent they are on each other um, to, to come to meetings for sponsorship, to, to listen to somebody's story and be able to um, take something from that to help them stay sober a day at a time. And for people with mental illness, once, you know, when they become isolated, they become, their symptoms increase and they become, you know, iller. And and so this idea of we have to be kind of connected to people in order to get better. And so it seems to me like we've got, on one hand, don't be codependent, don't, you know, you know, don't spend your life taking care of someone. But the reality of it is, is that um, to some degree, we have to do that. And I guess it's just the degree to which we give ourselves up um, in order to make that, to take care of that child that's um, paralyzed or our parents who have Alzheimer's or, um, you know, whatever. It's just, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know. I really don't know where I'm going with this. So I'm kind well, of. I, I, let me let me let here. me jump in because I think I think I know where you're going. And um, what what comes to mind as you're talking about is um, there is a my probably favorite saying in Al-Anon, um, which is to, to detach with love. And so, how can we may remain attached, connected to somebody? but detach from the negative parts of them. And it's um, somewhat, I think, akin to learning Zen, which um, from my very limited understanding of Zen is really a lifelong process, but it's how can we be in the moment, take care of ourselves, and minimize the negative impacts that come towards us. Um, And I think that, you know, what we teach people is um, a variety of things that are very contradictory. Um, you know, we, we talk to somebody who comes into Al-Anon and we will say, and, um, 
you know, like you're the problem, you're the enabler when, you know, this woman has been with this guy 20 years and all she's tried to do is love him and she's loved him the way she knows how to love. <laughs> she hasn't been trying to make him sick. <laughs> she's been trying to figure it out. And, um, and we say, oh, you're codependent and that's a bad thing. And, you know, and it's, it can be very confusing for people. Um, when you realize, you know, you've been trying to hold your family together and now you've got this label and now your whole family is sick and um, and then you bring kids into it and you tell the kids in a family session and you guys are all sick, by the way, that doesn't spell relief for a teenager. You know, <laughs> being right. told they're whacked out, that's not helpful. So I think, you know, we we have at this point a lot of experience with using this term in a variety of settings and it works in some settings and it doesn't work in other settings. And um, so I think we can be more nuanced and practical about what it is we're saying and uh, be careful because labels stick. And then once someone has a label, it's kind of a hard thing to move out of whatever that label is. So um, I think what we're saying about codependency is that we have been very confusing in how we've used it. And um, I have known of therapists who have said, you're codependent and you, you can't have a relationship for two years until you're in treatment for two years. And, you know, I've seen a lot of people pretty isolated because they were all, all alone. <laughs> you know? yeah. And, um, you know, I think we have to see what is helpful to people. And um, in, in my new book, I, I have that as a, a major concept about figuring out what is helpful to you. And my... Um, uh, editor crossed out when she first read it, you know, helpful and wrote in healthy. And she said, I think that's what you're saying. And I crossed it out and I said, no, healthy's become the, a new word that we beat ourselves up about. Helpful is the word. Is this helpful for me? Is it helpful for me to help my mother die? Is that helpful for me? Do I feel I'm responsible and I must do it or is it helpful to me? Because if it's helpful to me, then maybe it's something I should do. Is it helpful to me to be a counselor? Um, is it something I feel I was born to do and I have no other option? Well, that doesn't sound very helpful. But if it's helpful for me to do this work, then I get something back from it, and that's how I get paid. Um, those of us who do this work get paid in ways other than money, and it's not because we have codependency. It's not because we came from an alcoholic family. It's because there is a great richness in connecting with others. And it's a question of the quality of that connection. Is it a quality that brings out the light in us, or is it a quality of the connection that brings out the darkness in us? And that's maybe a way of talking about all of this. Um, so therefore, we can you know, practice one of the wonderful things that Al-Anon talks about, which is... Um, detachment with love, which um, in, um, I think, God, I'm blocking out his name. I think his last name is Ruiz, who wrote the four agreements. Um, one of the four agreements is don't take it personally. And <laughs> what he says um, in that book is um, when we take things personally, it is like opening our heart to the poison tip arrows that others will shoot at us. And when I first read that, I had this visceral reaction of wanting to just protect my heart, you know, putting my arms around my chest, and um, I don't want any poison chip arrows going in my heart. So it's, he talks about 
you know, without using the word, what is helpful? I think there are parts of codependency as it is broadly interpreted, interpreted that are helpful. Growing up in a traumatic home and feeling there's something you can do is a helpful thing. Feeling totally powerless is probably more painful. So those of us who developed this, you know, tendency to care for others, that was in some ways a helpful thing to do. Now, it may be something we want to add on to and learn how to take care of ourselves and learn how to set boundaries with others, but it doesn't mean that we didn't come from this from a very pure place that gave us something as well. It just doesn't have to be a place we have to stay in for the rest of our lives. So it's a, as I talk about it, it's a midway point, not a bad place to have been, Maybe not your final destination. <laughs> is that Much helpful? better said than what I could have done. No, I don't know. But it is, you know, I think so many of these different, um, oh, God, uh, revelations maybe is the best way of putting it, that are out there, you know, whether it's New Age or whether it's Al-Anon or I'm sure the Bible has references to this, are really about how do we connect to others in ways um, whether it's connecting to God, whether it's connecting to our, you know, our family, that preserve self-esteem. Um, right. You know, growing up in a traumatic family, love is present but unavailable. I just saw a young woman today, um, and she's living in a very challenging situation. And I talked to her about love being present but unavailable, that her parents love her. They just, they really can't show it. And she said, why? I said, I don't know. But, you know, I, I feel, you know, your, your, your parent did this, your parent did that. That's kind of a loving thing. And I, I, don't, I don't know why they can't show it more directly, but I know love is there. The problem is it's hard to wrap your arms around it. Guess what she wants to be, Mary? <laughs> she wants to be a nurse. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. She wants to be a nurse. There are a lot of other directions she could go in life. <laughs> you, know? But, you know, she wants to connect positively to others. She wants to feel that she can help others. She's frustrated she can't connect in her family, and but she's taking that need for connection, and she wants to go into a field where you know, that will be rewarded, that will be developed, she'll learn how to do a better job. That's not a bad stimulus, you know. You know, and and I think from, in life we go as far as we can see and then we go further. So this is as far as she can see. If she can get there, I know this kid is going to see further. Um, and maybe that's what we all, we need to allow ourselves to to grow and to change and not to, not to be so trapped by some of the terms that we have that, you know, that we want to say that's it, that's it forever and always. And one of the things we know about neuropsychology and neurodevelopment is that even as we get older, the brain is capable of changing, the, the brain is capable of, of rewiring. Um, it takes longer than it did when we were one, <laughs> but it's still doing it. It's, the brain is alive and dynamic. So even though we have learned one way of being rewarded, learned one way of being connected, it doesn't mean um, that we can't learn other ways and, and learn to work through the anxiety that change creates. 
um, learn um, to work through the awkwardness. You know, when we try to do something different, we're probably not going to be real polished (laughs) by how we do it, but that we can really, as adults and as people in recovery, be models for our children, for other people in the community about what change is. And that's part of my concern about the term codependency because it was, many people use it as a very limiting concept that doesn't embody change or hope, that it's, um, it's a kind of a dark, a dark term. And I think to be alive is to be alive. It's hopeful. It's, um, there's possibilities. And so how do we imbue that in terms like codependency so therefore people don't feel trapped by it but maybe feel challenged by it to really to grow and evolve, to connect more positively, um, and to learn what it is they need. And we'll be right back after this commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuso to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Patricia O'Gorman, and we're talking about codependency. Um, back in the day, one of the characteristics, especially when I used to work with, with young women, was the fact that their, their whole identity was wrapped up in whoever their partner was, and, and their sense of self 
Um, there was like really no boundary. I have worth because I'm with so-and-so. And we used to characterize that as a form of codependency. And I, I know one of the things that I, um, that I say to everybody around me is you need to claim your space. That, um, you know, it, you, somehow intrinsically you need to know that you have value and worth and then claim your space around it. So when we think about that whole part of codependency where I have value because I'm connected to you, um, but without you I am nothing. How do we make that into something um, more positive? Well, what I talk about in my book, The Resilient Woman, is to really make our our um, strengths conscious. And as women, what we tend to do is we, we have enormous res- strengths um, and we use them on behalf of all the people we care about in our life. Uh, we take care of our responsibilities. We're the mul- you know, original multitaskers. You know, we go from our, you know, first shift, getting the family out the door, second shift, job, third shift, come home, again, the family. Um, it's, you know, we need to make our strengths conscious so we can walk around saying, I am a multitasker. I can leap tall buildings. Um, so therefore we realize, okay, I'm a building leaper. I can do this. So that when we're presented with a personal challenge to us, we can say, I can do this for me. Now, often we, as women, we, we are, um, you know, it's, society says it's good for us to see the best in others. And in our partners, we tend to see the best. But if we have the ability to look past all of the, you know, challenges that each human being has and see the best in our partner, then maybe we can hold up that mirror and look for the best in ourselves. It's about doing for others and ourselves. It's not just about doing for others. I think how we, as women, uh, perpetuate what I call in my book these girly thoughts, uh, which is, you know, all the shoulds society says we should do, um, how we perpetuate that with our the next generation is because we don't show how to take care of ourselves. So if we use these same skills that say, I am John's wife and, you know, like, you know, he's so cool and I'm so cool. Well, why is he so cool? And um, hmm, you're connected to him. How about you getting connected to you? What's cool about you? If you can see coolness in him, can you see coolness in you? So we go back and forth that it's not just one or the other. It's both and. Um, as women, we, we, we tend to like to be in community, but we need to be in community with ourselves too and um, appreciate ourselves and help our daughters and our sons appreciate themselves and appreciate us. Um, so it's about consciously using our resilience. It's about consciously naming what strengths we have. It's about relishing um, that we love to be connected to others, but we also need to be connected to ourselves. And that means holding ourselves, holding our inner child, if you will, uh, when she shows herself um, as we, you know, begin the process of change, as we remember pains from the past, that we realize we can, you know, hold with one hand um, the pain that we have while we hold in the other hand what we've learned from that pain. That's what resiliency is all about. It's what we learn from pain. It's 
There's no such thing as intellectual resiliency. <laughs> and resiliency are those skills that are hard won. And anyone who, you know, walks around feeling that they have codependency is a highly skilled person who has skills just waiting to be named. So can we help them do that? Can we help them name their skills? Um, and, and, and understanding that being connected to others is a real skill. There are many people out there in the world, they are not connected. It is sad. We tend not to see them. When they ask for money on the streets, we tend not to see them. Um, if they happen to be our boss, uh, we tend not to see them, you know, in terms of their vulnerability. But there are plenty of disconnected people out there. So the fact that we are connected, even if we are very connected, that's still a strength. You know, um, I was at a, at a workshop on Friday, and this woman who was a nurse came up to me, and she said, you know, I'm just starting with a new program, and I'm the only um, addiction nurse there. And she said, you know, it's going to take a while for the counselors to accept that I know anything. And I said, really? She said, yeah. She said, because I'm not a counselor, they think I don't know anything. Uh, and I said, I said to her, well, you just claim your space. You know stuff. I said, you just walk in there, and you just you know, be who you are and claim your space. And she said, well, they won't validate me. And I said, they probably won't, but who will? And she said, the clients. I said, that's exactly right. I said, don't worry about getting validation from from those counselors because, um, you know, that may not happen. But you go out with your clients and they validate you right away because right. they see that connection. And I think sometimes as a profession, we tend to be clicky. Yeah. And, it's, and it's hard to get, um, you know, mutual support from our peers. Right. But it's, you know, the, you know our, the 12th step is all about you can't keep it unless you give it away. So, you know, we could do a better job of practicing some of our program yeah. with each other. You know, it's, um, um, you know, about how can we see the best in each other. I... I have an exercise, and it may be an ex- interesting exercise to um, um, for your listeners to do tonight, and that is um, if they're going to be with anybody, another person, take a half hour and just notice what that person does right during that half hour and experience the total shift in that relationship that occurs in that half hour where you are noticing what that person is doing right and we have, when we do that, enormous power. And we can do that with our coworkers. We hopefully are doing that with our clients. We can do that with our children. And we can do it with ourselves. Can we notice what we are doing right? And we can go, at a girl, at a boy. You know, <laughs> you know we, we have the power to change our perceptions. And uh, what we focus on is what we're going to remember. So um, what do we want to focus on? Do we want to focus on our strengths or do we want to focus on our deficits? They're both there. What do we want to focus on? Life is certainly much better when we focus on our strengths. <laughs> oh, I think so. The older I get, the more I get that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We didn't know this like 30 years ago, right? Right. Well, yeah, we didn't, you know, we were too busy beating ourselves up, but maybe that's the wisdom that comes from having lived through beating ourselves up. We realized there is a better way. And, um, you know, those of us who are, you know, listening and have been through many things in life, there is um, a great advantage, I think, in 
in growing older, so many people, especially people with the disease that we are so focused on, do not get the opportunity to grow older and learn. So, so we need to do that. We have a responsibility to grow and to learn and to use that wisdom to help others that we are connected to in our families and those we work with and, and um, those we work shoulder to shoulder with as well. So, Dr. Gorman, how can people contact you or where can they get your books? Well, uh, my book is available through any, you know, bricks and mortar bookstore, um, online, um, through um, Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, um, the publisher, Health Communication. And I answer emails, so if anyone wants to email me, please feel free to do that through my website, and that is my name, Patricia O'Gorman, O G O R. M-A-N, one word, dot com. Thank you so much. It's been a great hour. Time's just flown. Thank you so much. Oh, Mary, thank you so much. You are, you are a true treasure, and I'm honored to have again been on your show. So thank you, my dear. Thank you, and have a great week, everybody. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.